Welcome to this Gastroenterology Learning Network podcast. My name is Brian Lacey. I'm a professor of medicine at the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida. I am absolutely delighted to be speaking today to Dr. Kenneth Cook and Dr. David Kenjemi. And today we're going to discuss how functional dyspepsia and gastroparesis may not be that distinct and different condition we once believed they were. So Ken, going back, you know, we're kind of hearing this theme that for years, clinicians believe that functional dyspepsia and gastroparesis were completely separate, completely different camps, different definitions, different causes, even different treatments. But now clearly the lines are blurring. And you've been so involved in this gastroparesis consortium over the years. Could you highlight maybe two or three key findings from the consortium about maybe how things are really more of an overlap and more of a spectrum than rather than individual disorders? Yes, thank you. Yeah, a paper just came out uh, from the consortium uh, in gastro. I, it may be in print, but it's certainly electronic. Basically, it looked at hundreds of patients. I think in the end, it was over uh, 250 patients with gastroparesis who did something uh, that we have never done before. That is, they had their gastric emptying study repeated one year, 48 weeks after their initial gastric emptying study. And there were maybe 100, almost 200 patients who had normal gastric emptying because uh, we did take in a 20 to 30% of our patients in the gastroparesis consortium have symptoms associated with gastroparesis, but they had normal emptying. So we had this cadre of uh, this cohort that had normal emptying. And so everybody got a gastric emptying study 48 weeks later. And I think the, the thing that struck everybody the most was in the gastroparetics uh, at one year follow-up, 40% of them actually had normal gastric emptying. We kind of used to think people uh, were condemned for life with a diagnosis of gastroparesis. So here, you know, people got different treatments. It's a little bit muddy. I mean, they were all at six different sites, you know, doctors trying to get them better. But when they came to the actual gastric emptying, there were that many were normal. And overall symptoms on the GCSI didn't change that much uh, as an average. Uh, but the, when you looked at individuals, symptoms really were no different. That is compared to baseline. The 40% who had a normal emptying at 48 weeks, their GCI symptoms were, were really no different than at baseline when they had delayed emptying. And this brought up the point then, well, where are these symptoms coming from? It's not just the rate of emptying. And so for many years now, we've, we have many papers, there could be a dozen papers now that show the rate of emptying does not correlate well with the symptoms. You know, and the symptoms are predominantly in the first half hour, hour after people eat. And interesting, those who had, it was also almost the same amount, maybe 37% who had normal emptying normal emptying at baseline actually had delayed. Some of these patients anyway, with symptoms we've been talking about, are really on a borderline between delay and non-delay. And, and it really didn't even matter if they were mildly delayed, moderately delayed. And this was the big message, I think, of this paper. And in both the delayed and the FD patients, uh, they found small subsets of these patients that were actually biopsied had depleted ICCs. So something that holds them together, you see, uh, in my mind, is the loss of ICCs. It's the loss of pacemaker cells 
are there other factors like the pylorus, which wasn't studied? But I think the point is that these symptoms are common in the two groups and the gastric emptying is not the key. There's loss of ICCs and that brings up, you know, dysrhythmia as a common phenomena. That was the main gist of that uh, uh, consortium study that I think will bring on more studies that tie these two groups together. At, but at this point, uh, what holds together in my mind um, are the loss of ICCs in both groups. Ken, some amazing teaching points. I'm just going to highlight two from there. One is that when we think about treatment, and we're going to get to that in just a minute, but necessarily accelerating stomach emptying may not improve symptoms. And that's been shown time and time again, although still controversial. And the second point is that patients may move back and forth a little bit with changes in gastric emptying. The third teaching point, though, may be make sure you do the gastric emptying scan correctly because so many places do them incorrectly. Bad study, bad data, bad treatment outcomes. So just, and don't be afraid to repeat it because people do change. David, uh, we heard a lot of great stuff there. Would you be kind enough just kind of once again, layer on some of the similarities and or differences you think between functional dyspepsia and gastroparesis? Sure. Not to to be a dead horse, but I think the most noteworthy similarity in my mind between uh, functional dyspepsia and gastroparesis is that the symptoms themselves, which are essentially the same as Dr. Cook just just mentioned. So, I mean, both can present with early satiety, postprandial fullness, abdominal pain, nausea, bloating. One of these or all these. In addition to the findings from the the, the recent consortium findings, uh, I think Brian, your study from a few years ago is worth highlighting, where you use the gastroparesis cardinal symptom index or the GCSI to assess uh, functional dyspepsia symptoms and essentially found that the GCSI, which is validated and widely used in research studies for gastroparesis, was not able to reliably distinguish between functional dyspepsia and gastroparesis. Talking about etiology, I think the, the fact that both functional dyspepsia and gastroparesis can occur as a result of an infection. The fact that there's a post-infectious group links an important uh, similarity between these two. And then talking about pathophysiology, as we've already talked about, the fact that delayed gastric emptying, of course, is a defining feature of gastroparesis, but the idea that a a good percentage of patients with dyspepsia can have mildly delayed gastric emptying and also impaired accommodation. So there are some some pathophysiologic links as well between these two disorders. David, that's great. And I just want to highlight one thing there. A common misconception is that gastroparesis patients don't have pain, but as we've just heard from two experts, the data shows about 90% have pain. This is a neuropathic process. Mm -hmm. David, when you think about a practicing gastroenterologist, are there one or two or three kind of key points that clinicians should pay attention to when trying to determine if a patient has gastroparesis or functional dyspepsia? Absolutely. So again, the fact that symptoms cannot distinguish these two disorders. So that's important for everyone to, to recognize. You can't tell a dyspeptic from a gastroparesis based on symptoms alone. Two would be to think about risk factors. As Dr. Koch mentioned, I think not only 
if a patient has gastroparesis, why do they have gastroparesis? So when you're seeing a patient in clinic, they have diabetes, are there medications? Uh, what's their surgical history? Is there a reason why they would have gastroparesis if this is a diagnosis that you're considering? In terms of uh, functional dyspepsia, I think about are, are there psychologic factors? Is there a history of central centralization syndrome or fibromyalgia or IBS? which might make a diagnosis of functional dyspepsia more likely in your patient. Finally, I think important to highlight the importance of the gastric emptying study to distinguish if you're trying to make a diagnosis, tell a patient you have gastroparesis or you have functional dyspepsia, you really need a gastric emptying study. But again, as we've kind of touched on, these, these disorders might be part of the same spectrum of, of disease, and maybe that may not matter as much as it used to. David, great. Thank you. So, Ken, as we start to wind down here, what our clinicians want to know who are listening in today is if you focus on gastroparesis, could you lay out a treatment pathway? How do you do it at Wake Forest? One of the things uh, that is important still is to know the rate of emptying. So I agree with, uh, with David. It's good to know if there is a delay uh, it's not the whole enchilada, uh, but it uh, is a marker. And then, you know, for years, we've um, looked at the stomach's electrical rhythm with um, what's called electrogastrography. Uh, it's non-invasive EKG of the stomach, I tell patients. We've been interested in recording the normal rhythm or dysrhythmias. And I think as we, over the last 10 years, we've learned so much more about the ICCs that it's made me uh, feel better about uh, you know, trying to interpret the electrical rhythm. We, we know so much more about it. And here's the interesting thing. About 20% of my patients who have gastroparesis have a normal rhythm. Some have an hypernormal. It is unbelievably beautiful, normal, three-cycle-per-minute rhythm. And, you know, one of the older papers, uh, again, out of Mayo, uh, actually shows histologically, it is about 20% of patients with gastroparesis who have a normal number of ICCs. And these are a little bit buried in some papers. So what's going on with those patients? Well, many years ago, uh, we had a paper that described that very scenario, delayed emptying, beautiful three cycle per minute, which means you must have enough ICCs. Well, my patients, uh, all had overlooked pyloric stenosis. You know, we don't miss that so much anymore, but imagine a stenotic pylorus, but a pretty healthy corpus antrum. So it's, it's beating away at three per minute against an obstruction. And uh, those people, you know, at all end up having Bill Roth, Bill Roth ones, Bill Roth twos, they couldn't be dilated. Or what we're really finding now with endoflip is a, a lot of these patients are going to have poorly distensible uh, pylori. And so my practice is to find those who have delayed emptying a normal rhythm. And I'll say, my gosh, I'm happy to see this because you're the person I'm going to balloon dilate the pylorus. You're the person I'm going to put the uh, Botox into. And uh, we have a paper on that, but we've also taken a few of those patients onto pyloroplasty but only after I've seen two or three, you know, really, really dramatic responses. So this gets at this, uh, a growing interest in what is the pylorus contributing in the gastroparetic patient. So I think as you subtype gastroparesis 
um, this might help our therapies. At least that's how I'm using it here at Wake. Alternatively, you know, uh, 75%, most patients have a dysrhythmia of some kind. Everybody manages to empty some. How do they do that? Well, I think they don't have zero ICCs. You know, they, they have some, there's some uh, corpus antral contraction. The pylorus is a variable we have to figure out, but those are the patients then, that's a tougher group. I'll try the drugs that we all have, which are very few. I, I must say, I probably spend more time on diet. This is a great overview, Ken. I think as we wind down, I think that kind of low residue diet, there's one published study in the American Journal of Gastroenterology from Magnus Simran years ago. It's been understudied. And then this litany of uh, medication options, although no validated treatment algorithm, right? So maybe we should just say, we'll focus on individualized medicine for these patients, right? That's, uh, that's it. And, and when you know, for instance, we use like a water load, they have five minutes to drink till they're completely full. Some of my patients cannot drink eight ounces and they're completely full. Uh, others can go up to 600, 700. So it gets at that fundic gastric accommodation or hypersensitivity. You tailor the diet or the gastroparesis diet and drugs. My gosh, it's still a problem. I still stop Reglan. Uh, I'm still going back to some Bethanicol now and then. None of them great studies, as you know. There just right. still isn't a really beautiful modern prokinetic study because uh, I think it's probably more subtle than a prokinetic isn't going to help you if you've already got a great rhythm, but your pylorus is the problem. Right. Prokinetic's not going to help. So I think as we know more pathophys, we'll uh, know we'll be smarter about meds. Uh, but I think we still have to try these prokinetics. I do. I like a little bit of mestinon. Then it's the anti-nauseants that we all, you know, some some ondansetron. Uh, we studied, you know, uh, a prepotent uh, in a consortium, and it seemed to uh, cut, it did cut down on nausea. Um, it cut down on some dysrhythmia, but you know, it's hard to get that drug for a lot of patients. It's expensive and they often reserve it for the cancer chemotherapy patients all the way up to, you know, a gastric stimulator and, and J, GJ tubes for the people who are just, their stomachs don't, are, are so bad, they cannot support nutrition. It is a management uh, smorgasbord. Well, just highlighting that, although we speak of gastroparesis as a single disorder, it's a very heterogeneous disorder encompassing both sensory and motor dysfunction. David, in the last minute here, uh, if you think about functional dyspepsia, can you highlight some of the treatment options that you think are most important for our listeners? Of course. So again, another long discussion, but we'll highlight, we'll, we'll be succinct. So I think number one is first explain the diagnosis and reassurance to the patient. I think that goes a long way. A lot of patients are, we're seeing them for their fourth, fifth, sixth opinion. They're looking for a diagnosis. Often many of them think that there's something, some sinister cause underlying their symptoms. So I think confidently diagnose, diagnosing functional dyspepsia, explaining what that is goes a long way. I think the ACG guidelines, as far as treatment, put out a, a nice algorithm. So, you know, first looking for H. pylori, knowing that that's a risk factor for for functional dyspepsia. If if a, a test is positive, whether that's a gastric biopsy or stool antigen or a breath test, treat and then reassess. 
if symptoms persist, a trial of PPI therapy is reasonable uh, as a short-term trial, uh, once daily, uh, maybe up to four weeks or so. Maybe a small percentage of patients will respond to that. But then when you move beyond that, and especially if the symptoms are moderate or severe, patients with moderate or severe symptoms, then you, you're, I, I'm often going on to, to use a neuromodulator. So for epigastric pain syndrome, where pain is really a predominant symptom, I, I often use CCAs. Uh, whereas if a patient has more meal-related satiety or fullness, uh, I think about using mirtazapine or buspirin because there is some small data suggesting that these medications can be helpful for those two subtypes. And then finally, I think patients, especially those who have severe symptoms, concomitant anxiety and, and other psychologic factors, I think psychotherapy can go a long way, either in isolation, but more often in combination with medications and other things to help with symptoms. So those are things like cognitive behavioral therapy, maybe acupuncture, hypnotherapy. The number needed to treat on these therapies is, I think, four. Um, so it's very safe and, and, and a reasonable uh, thing to do, especially if a patient's really, really struggling. David, great. So for our listeners today, we can't thank you enough for joining us. You've just heard this amazing state of the heart review on functional dyspepsia and gastroparesis. Ken Cook from Wake Forest, thank you so much for your expert contributions to the field over the last several decades with hopefully decades to come. And David <laughs> Kenjemi from Mayo Clinic, thank you again for your expertise and some neat cutting edge research coming from your lab. So to our listeners, thank you. And to both of our speakers today, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure.